Ever stop to think about how amazing it is that you have this box in your home that keeps food cold? Reliable at-home refrigeration is pretty new to history and utterly transformative to how we live. Learn about how this technology came to be so commonplace and how it changed the world. This week on Footnoting History. Hello, Footnoting History friends. It's Kristen here with an especially good episode, if I do say so myself. And I do. This was a really fun episode for me to research and to just sit and think about because I really hadn't thought about it much before. The history of refrigeration. So I have this love-hate relationship with my refrigerator. We inherited it when we bought our house. Originally, I was really excited about it, but it has now broken three times and I keep having to get it repaired. It's built into this incredibly specific space, which makes replacing it an absolute nightmare. And the only other brand that will fit is another Viking. And I refuse to get another Viking. Hi, Viking. This content is not sponsored, but hey, Viking, if you want to redeem yourself, give me a call and we'll talk. Your oven door has also fallen off as I was cooking a Thanksgiving turkey. I'd love to change my mind about your products. But the point is, having a broken refrigerator was a huge hassle. We had to convert the basement beer fridge into a grocery space. I know, sometimes my life is really hard. But it really got me thinking about how critical refrigeration has become to our lives. And I really sat and thought about how new it all actually is. It's just not that old, guys. Plus, it's totally changed lives and affected gender roles. And the technology is incredible. There is just so much that is cool about it. And no, I didn't actually mean to do that. But there you go. Please enjoy your opening pun. I feel like Josh would be proud of me. Please remember as we begin that if you would like a captioned version of this episode, you can find it on our YouTube channel as well as our website, footnotinghistory.com. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon and Ko-Fi supporters, old and new, and a heartfelt thank you to our wonderful intern Maggie, who helped tremendously with pulling together resources for this episode. You can find a list of all her hard work on this episode's page on our website, and you definitely should take a look. I have a feeling you're going to want to keep learning about this because the story is incredible and it's huge and there are so many angles to it and I can only get you started, but I will. First off, I mean, yes, people have been using ice and the cold for a long time in connection with food and drink. A lot of that early history is sort of vague though. and. The cold is not really believed to have been used for actually preserving food way back when. It's not really thought of as a type of refrigeration per se, more than a method of cooling things down for culinary enjoyment. These early efforts were, and for some reason this part really delights me, a means of chilling beverages. But again, historians don't think that people were really doing all of this in an effort to preserve their food. Rich people had access to ice, but it was more of a luxury, almost novelty item than a necessity or an integral part of how people were keeping their food from going bad. Instead, they did things like drying and salting and smoking. Root cellars were, are actually, 
really good for preserving hearty vegetables and some fruits like apples. Dairy products were commonly turned into butter or cheese, which can last a really long time without refrigeration, especially if it's airtight and salted. I currently have a hunk of Parmesan that was aged 36 months, and it's the best Parmesan of my life. You can cook meat in a layer of fat, too, and then let that fat solidify, also creating an airtight environment, and it keeps a long time. It's called duck confit, guys, and it's delicious. So, you know, there's stuff, but it doesn't rely on producing and maintaining a cold environment. All of the stuff people did to preserve their food is pretty ingenious and absolutely critical for their survival. It was also pretty limiting and time-consuming. There's something that historians who study refrigeration call the cold chain, meaning getting food from point A all the way to point B before it spoils by maintaining a continuous, consistent level of cooling. And the cold chain is a long time coming, and the technology that makes it possible simply does not exist in the pre-modern European-American period, which is where we are mostly focused today because that is where the technology and the market and the cold chain really first develops. Producing cold was more or less seen as impossible until the 19th century. Jonathan Rees's really excellent and highly narrative and entertaining book, Refrigeration Nation, opens with a quote from Francis Bacon, that prolific English philosopher and scientist who is probably most famous for his contributions to the 17th century scientific revolution. Medievalist PSA, there were other scientific revolutions that preceded this. But in any event, in 1624, Bacon had the hot take, so to speak, that you just have to wait for nature to do its thing. You can make fire, but you can't make it cold. It would be really handy if you could, though. And Bacon performed an experiment in 1626 where he buried a dead chicken in the snow to see if that would preserve the carcass. Fun fact, it seemed to work, but Bacon caught a cold in the process, and that's how he died. So it's on at least some people's minds that access to cold could have real benefits. And I mentioned a little earlier that rich ancients were figuring out how to cool their beverages. There were also successful efforts in the 1500s and 1600s that involved saltpeter. And by the time you get to the 18th century, people, especially the French, are making frozen desserts and people are enjoying ice. There are ice houses in the 18th century. They're built into the ground, into the sides of hills to take advantage of the cold, insulated environment. And they're filled with blocks of ice packed in straw. But they definitely weren't something that everyone just had. In terms of this being a wider, profitable industry that eventually becomes about the preservation of food, you're looking at only like the last 200 years, and you're looking first at ice harvesting on a large scale. The person who gets the credit for getting the refrigeration industry started was Frederick Tudor, aka the Ice King. Mr. Ice King was an American who was the son of a lawyer who worked for George Washington during the American Revolution, and he was born in Boston in 1783. To be clear, Tudor wasn't the first person to try to sell ice. Other people were long doing that. That's how those 18th century ice houses were getting filled. But he did really expand the market beyond its previously pretty local constraints. 
His first big shipment was from Boston to the island of Martinique in the West Indies in 1806. A lot of historians who write about Tudor will quote the Boston Gazette article on this first voyage, and I see why. Quote, No joke, the newspaper wrote. A vessel with a cargo of 80 tons of ice has cleared out of this port for Martinique. We hope this will not prove a slippery speculation. Slow clap, Boston Gazette. Slow clap. People were not expecting much. The boat did get to Martinique, but that probably came as a surprise to a lot of people who thought that the ice would melt on the way and sink the ship. Tudor was only allowed to sell his ice off of the boat itself, and surprise, surprise, in 1806, that ice did not last long in the tropical heat. And also, people really didn't know what to do with it. Tudor was selling them a product they weren't sure the utility of and that vanished almost instantly. Yeah, so he lost money on that first venture, but Tudor kept at it and he figured some stuff out. He set up the first rudimentary cold chain, meaning he built a series of ice houses along his routes. So the ice would be cut in the winter and packed into houses in Boston, and from there it would head out to the market, hopscotching from New England to much warmer areas pretty far away. The key to the ice houses and the transportation was insulation. And the thing that Tudor figured out worked best was sawdust. The more precisely you could cut the blocks of ice and fit them together with a layer of sawdust in between, the more likely your ice was to survive storage and transit. And Tudor packed those ice houses and those ships full. And it actually more or less worked, which I find just incredible. Turns out if you pack that ice really well and you have pretty smooth sailing, you can get all the way to India with only 35% of your ice lost. You could lose a lot more than that, but the fact that anyone was getting from Boston to India at all in the first half of the 19th century with ice is just still stunning to me. Once they got to port, Tudor still had to convince people that ice was actually a thing that they wanted. In places where there were more European colonists who were already on board with the idea of ice drinks, business was better. One of the things I love most about this whole story is that one of the first commercial uses for all of this ice was for mixed drinks in the tropics, but also the U.S. coastal bar scene, which is actually where Tudor did most of his business. Sometimes history surprises me and sometimes it doesn't. They were also using ice to develop that cold chain for taking food from one location to another, really far away, and selling it before it spoiled. This started happening in the 1840s with ice-cooled rail cars, and then in the 1850s, giant ocean liners filled with ice took food overseas. Texas and Australia started shipping beef, bananas started coming from the tropics to temperate ports, stuff starting to move around a lot thanks to the ice industry. It will eventually become a big deal when Frederick McKinley Jones invented and developed a mechanical refrigeration unit that could be attached to trucks in the 1930s and 40s. Jones was awesome and deserves his own episode. But anyway, the refrigeration industry did become incredibly profitable in the 19th century, and there were improvements in tools for harvesting and transporting ice. And by the 1880s, it's pretty good. But it was also around this time that the ice industry started to decline. 
people were worried about the cleanliness of the ice. A lot of natural resources were becoming polluted and dirty. There were concerns about disease being spread through contaminated water, and the ice industry took a dive. But people had grown quite accustomed pretty quickly to having appliances in their homes that kept food cold. And also the cold chain that was in place that helped fill household refrigerated ice boxes, which were pretty common, especially in American homes starting in the 1840s, but had their problems and hassles. People had been trying to figure out a mechanical way to produce cold for years before they were able to make something that was cost-effective, reliable, and small enough to fit inside your house. The small enough part was actually one of the hardest and the last thing to happen. So William Cullen, who was a Scottish physician, is generally cited as being the inventor of mechanical refrigeration in 1755. Cullen's machine worked by reducing the pressure of water in a closed container by the use of an air pump. At very low pressure, water evaporates or boils very violently. And you're probably thinking, what? Aren't we talking about creating something cold? Why is this woman talking about boiling? Don't worry, I didn't remember anything from my high school physics class either, but stick with me. Cold is the absence of heat. Your modern refrigerator works by pumping out the heat to create a cold environment. If you've ever felt the coils on the back of your fridge, don't. They're hot. They're constantly running and they're working on sucking out that heat. In Cullen's mechanical refrigerator, the heat needed to change the water from liquid to vapor comes from the water, and it's so much heat that the water changes into ice. So cool, metaphorically and literally. But it was a very precarious process, and Cullen's machine never really moved beyond the, hey, fun fact, stage of experimentation. However, the groundwork was laid, and other inventors experimented with other things, Vapor, compression systems, ether, ammonia, and carbon dioxide. People were on it. This is in the mid-19th century, right around the time that all those overseas and long-distance shipments are happening. There's a demand for the cold chain, and there are some pretty high stakes. This is also an overlapping period with the development of the science of thermodynamics, which was crucial to the development of mechanical refrigeration. The system that eventually emerged and remains to this day basically how your home refrigerator works is called compression cycle refrigeration. So what happens is that a chemical substance that is referred to as a refrigerant lives in a circular tube and it's put under pressure or compressed and it goes from liquid to gas and as it does that it pulls out the heat from inside the enclosed box where you keep your food. If you want more detail about how it all works exactly, lots of engineers have written lots about this and they will go into greater, more sophisticated explanations than I can give you here. The first refrigerants were invented in the later 19th century, but they had their drawbacks, like there were dangerous leaks, they kept exploding, and all of these early mechanical refrigerators were massive. They weighed several tons. Today, people use Freon. It's more stable and it ended up being way cheaper than other refrigerants and you can use it in small spaces. Jonathan Reese has a great section in his book on the development of the refrigerator as we know it. 1900 to the 1920s is a period of invention where the home fridge goes through lots of experimentation and there are several companies that maybe sound familiar and maybe not, like Frigidaire and the Kelvinator and honestly my favorite, 
the icy bowl. But 1927 is the year when the fridge as you know it happened. It's the Monitor Refrigerator by GE. Make sure you take a look at this thing. It's fantastic. It's on the Footnoting History website and on our YouTube channel. It's this metal cabinet on four legs, and it's not that big. The compressor and the other mechanics just sit right there on top. A lot of historians will talk about the monitor being the first affordable home refrigerator, but they often just leave it at that. Reese says that the first home refrigerators cost, quote, a lot. But in 1920, quote, the average cost was $600, and by 1930, it was $275. And by 1940, it dropped to $152. I found one newspaper ad from the Waco Tribune from 1928 that was advertising a GE model RT-72 for $320 cash, or $419 based on their budget plan which meant that you paid $5 to walk out the door and then $15 a month. Now, how much does this translate into today's money? Well, so there's a range, but $600 in 1927 was about $8,700, and $320 in 1928 was about $5,500. Point being, it was a lot. But the price was dropping, and it was becoming more obtainable, especially if you went with a financing option. I found that 1928 advertisement hilarious to read, by the way. It's called Mrs. Waco Buys, and it's structured like a play that thinks it's really the most enthralling thing ever. Quote, scene, display room, Texas Power and Light Company, time, the morning after Mrs. Waco made up the Waco mind about a certain important family purchase. Mr. and Mrs. Waco enter and are met by a salesman. And I'm not kidding. The whole thing is a very wordy dialogue between the salesman and Mr. and Mrs. Waco. Mrs. Waco has three children and wants to store more food in her house. And Mr. Waco wants to know about performance and how much it's going to cost to run it. And it's a gripping narrative. Will they get it? Won't they get it? They get it. But what I did find actually very interesting is that there isn't a picture of the refrigerator in this ad but also how refrigerators were marketed specifically to women in the 20th century. The design of the refrigerator changed a lot in the 1930s, and a lot of the reason was because engineers and designers were trying to figure out how to get and keep middle-class suburban American women interested in the household refrigerator. In the 1930s, the fridge went from expensive luxury item to something that many ordinary households had. The numbers went from 8 to 44% by 1940, and that's a huge jump. The period where everyone was hopping on board the refrigerated train, so to speak, was also the Great Depression era, which I initially found to be pretty surprising. But the 1930s were all about frugality and economy. Buying groceries in bulk can save. The Costco rationale, as Jonathan Reese puts it. You can more efficiently use leftovers. Stuff like that. A lot of people couldn't afford servants anymore in the 1930s, and housewives had to shoulder a lot more of the domestic chores, so there was an emphasis on, quote, servantless housewives and how to save them time and effort. This was also a time when there continued to be technological advancements in gas and electric utilities, so appliances could improve and they could be run more efficiently. 
there was also more standardization and mass production, and these things would only increase after World War II. But in terms of the Great Depression, there was New Deal electrification, and there were loans, and all of this work to really bolster the home refrigerator market. Your fridge looks a lot today like it did in the 1940s. People hated that monitor design. And by people, I do mean mostly women who complained that they didn't like the mechanical element just sitting there on top. They didn't like that it made the refrigerator difficult to clean. They wanted adjustable shelving. In 1932, Mary Andrews, who worked for GE and who had fielded a lot of complaints from women, told GE that they needed to streamline things, make it easier to clean, that women wanted the fridge, quote, out of sight, out of mind. Home economics, which was a discipline in the United States that was well into its swing in the 1930s and 40s, was emphasizing hygiene in the home and how keeping food cold and thus preserved was a healthy, modern thing. And these two things merged in the overall design and desire for home refrigerators. Metallic white was viewed as having this hygienic appeal, whereas the ice boxes of relative yore were often these hulking wooden things. What I found super interesting is that the design of refrigerators today in that stainless steel sort of industrial look has a lot to do with social perception of how cool celebrity chefs are with their professional kitchens. And that is today often a field dominated by men. This is something that Jonathan Reese talks about. He also talks about how there is better separation between the freezer and the fridge in the 1940s. There's a frost-free version of the fridge in the 1950s. In the 1960s, fridges get bigger. And in the 1970s, there is experimentation with colors. It's how you get people to buy more refrigerators when their old ones still work perfectly fine. Some of these changes are engineer-driven, but a lot had to do with what was important to female customers. Some of it is a little chicken or egg. In the 1950s, Clarence Birdseye improved on the process of freezing vegetables to the point of making bags of frozen veggies commonplace and decent to eat. So now you could keep bags of vegetables at the ready and season be damned. Was this something that people wanted enough that Birdseye figured out? Or did he figure it out and then convince people they wanted it? Whatever the case, the frozen food market exploded mid-century. And the nuclear family of four sitting in front of the TV with their folding trays and their frozen dinners is the quintessential image, at least I have, for 1960s affluent suburban America. The intersection of gender and class and technology and cooking is just this wonderful expanse. It's not all great news, though. For example, some of this has led to reliance on large-scale utility use that has had repercussions for climate. A lot of American food suffers for taste and freshness because it's coming from so far away. The picture is complicated. I cannot recommend enough the books and articles linked in the further reading, and I cannot encourage you enough to look at the footnotes in those works. I went down a wonderful rabbit hole of American consumerism in the 20th century just from Nichols' article. I've only mentioned a few people and appliances by name here, but guys, there are so many. There is this whole vast history to this thing that you use every day, this technological process that impacts how and what you eat, how you are 
thus able to spend the rest of your time and how that has all changed the world. And it's really just incredible. This has been Footnoting History. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or our shop link on our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can also find links related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also interact with us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.